This is Gil Manser welcoming you to a special Grateful Dead version of word-by-word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Our guest is librarian and cultural historian David Dodd, author of a massive book with a rather long title, The Complete Annotated Grateful Dead Lyrics, the collected lyrics of Robert Hunter and John Barlow, lyrics to all original songs with selected traditional and cover songs. In addition to being a deadhead, David is also the collections manager for the Sonoma County Library System and is especially interested in identifying and collecting the work of Sonoma County writers, musicians, and visual artists. The reasons for today's show about the Grateful Dead is multifold. First, the band has strong local roots. Lead vocalist and guitarist Jerry Garcia lived in Casadero and went to Sebastopol's Annalee High School. Rhythm guitar and vocalist Bob Weir was born in San Francisco and grew up in Atherton. Piano player, organist, and songwriter Pigpen McKernan was born in San Bruno and attended Palo Alto High School. Bass guitarist Phil Lesh was born in Berkeley and went to Berkeley High, the College of San Mateo, UC Berkeley, and Mills College for graduate school. Drummer Bill Kritzman was born in Palo Alto and went to Pali High. Percussionist Mickey Hart and his dad own a music store in San Carlos, and Mickey's home music studio is in Sebastopol. Lyricist Robert Hunter, known as the band member who doesn't come on stage with us, began writing songs for the dead at a 1967 gig in Rio Nido, California. The other reason is that the band, which formed in the practice room of a Palo Alto music store in 1965, is having a 50th reunion of the dead's four surviving members. Billy, Bobby, Mickey, and Phil. Called the Fare Thee Well Tour, the concert will be held June 27th and 28th at Santa Clara's Levi Stadium and on July 3rd through 5th at Chicago Soldier Field. As of today, tickets are scarce but still available. So now on to the meat and potatoes. David Dodd, welcome to Word by Word. Thank you very much, Gil. So the most obvious questions for you are, how did a librarian become a deadhead expert and... What exactly does a library collections manager do? You can pick whichever one you want to start. Oh, all right. Well, um, it sort of was the other way around because I was a deadhead <laughs> before I was a librarian. Ah. So how does a deadhead become a librarian? That might be more That's interesting. That's a better question, really. More interesting yeah. question, although it would be really fun to find some librarian out there who became a deadhead. So if you, you know, if that's you, definitely let me know. Um, well, I... I first discovered the band uh, through literature, actually. Um, I was living in Germany for a year between high school and college in the year 1974-75. Your gap year. My gap year. I was a Kiwanis foreign exchange scholar. It was really fun. I spent a year in Germany. I traveled all around Europe. And while I was traveling, I was reading whatever I get my hands on in the way of things that were written in English. And one of the books that fell into my hands was Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test which is a wonderful uh, freewheeling sort of documentary version, um, I guess creative nonfiction in its best incarnation, really, um, about the Merry Pranksters led by Ken Kesey. And, of course, major characters in that were the Grateful Dead. So and the, Mountain Girl, et cetera, et cetera. All of those people, yep. yeah. So when I 
was in college at Davis. In the following year, I got to experience my first actual Grateful Dead concert uh, live at the Oakland Coliseum opening for The Who. And I really went more because I was a Who fan than a, a Dead fan, um, but they were intriguing. And then when they came out on stage, I thought, wow, this is like characters from a book marching out on stage. It's kind of if you went to a show and the you know Gandalf and those guys came out on stage because mm-hmm. to me they were sort of at that level, um, youngster that I was. And, and then the music started and I was kind of taken aback by how, how it hit me. It was a, a really made me dance. I uh, looked around. I felt like I was part of a community of people, and uh, it made me think. The, the lyrics right away struck me as something special. Mm-hmm. So I came away from that show in October of 1976. Um, I'd say a confirmed deadhead. That's the way it often happens with people. There's this little conversion moment, you know, that you get. So, um, and then ever since then, I've uh, just gone into the music when I can. Um, I didn't ever get to go on the road and follow them, but I've traveled a ways to see them at times. I'll be going to Chicago uh, for, oh, the, for the July yeah. 3rd concert on Friday night, and I'll be seeing them on Sunday the 28th in Levi's Stadium. So I get to see them twice out of these five shows. Um, and I'm looking forward to that for all the controversy around it. Um, Which controversy? Because of the scalpers and all that or what? Which one? Oh, gosh. There's so many different angles that people have leveled criticism on this whole <laughs> notion. Um, whether it's at first they said two shows, three shows only in Chicago, that's it. And so if you want to see us, this is it. This is your only chance. So many of us scrambled and did the whole mail order thing with the number 10 envelope and the 3x5 card and all the stuff yeah. that you have to do. And Lots we did of that. decorations on the envelope. I didn't, never did decorations. Oh, did but I got tickets anyway for that. So that was great. And then they announced, oh, well, there's been such demand. Let's do something in California, which, you know, would have made really a lot of sense for them to announce at the get-go. So um, that's one point of controversy is just this sort of sense that we were – but, you know, you know, they never trust a prankster. So. Well, yeah, but they also claim in the letter they sent out, probably you got one, that because uh, it was sent to all deadheads that they had, uh, you know, emails for, that um, they were doing the next two concerts because, you know, scalpers had picked up so many of the tickets. And right. they all of a sudden went and triple, quadruple, et cetera, right. in price. And that kind of put it out of the range of normal human beings. Yeah, I could see that. And, I, you know, I... Whatever the reason, I'd be fine actually if they now declared they were going to tour full out. You know that that's fine too. I don't I don't really care as long as I get to see them some and they get to play together and the music continues to to be out there in the world. Right. So, right. you know that that I would never pay scalper prices for a Grateful Dead ticket. It's part of the ethics of being a deadhead. Is if you buy a ticket and you can't use it, you either give it away or sell it for face value. Right. So the the whole notion that they're scalped versions of these tickets out there is somewhat mind-boggling, but I understand that there was a whole section of the tickets that had to be set aside for Bears um, subscriber fans. That's right. So, uh, of course, if you were a savvy... Soldier Field deal. Yeah, yeah, if you were a savvy Soldier Field season ticket holder, you would buy some tickets and sell them, right? right. So, you know, I can't blame them for wanting to do that. And, you know, people people are entitled to do what they want to with their money and with their tickets. Okay, I'm going to do a segue here. You just mentioned the deadhead ethics, and earlier off-air you talked about librarians' ethics, and specifically with regard to the Patriot Act. So the jump is not too illogical here. 
Uh, we just had a, a major change. I'm not sure people know the one of the requirements of the Patriot Act was a section that specifically was aimed at libraries and librarians, in which if they were presented with a, a federal letter, they were prohibited from mentioning that they have, in fact, been served with that and therefore could not talk about it. So then there was all kinds of controversy because there was a lawsuit brought in by a small group of librarians who had been served with the letter, and then they said, after the federal government announced publicly, we've never used those, that in fact six of them had received letters. So they obviously had been used. Right. We have no idea how many librarians were served with that letter over the years. There are uh, estimates that go yeah. Yeah, in the hundreds. Pretty high. And, yeah. and given that we were told um, that we absolutely could not talk about it if we were served with such a letter, people came up with creative ways to make it known. Right. Uh, for instance, in Santa Cruz, where I worked at the time uh, that the Patriot Act uh, came into being, uh, the director there, Ann Turner, put up signs in all her libraries that said, as of right now, we have not been served with a Section 215 letter. Right. And so the yeah, the I joke mean, was that she could take those signs down. Well, one of them did, I understand. If this sign is not here <laughs> yeah, tomorrow, right. you make the connection. Right, right exactly. So that was kind of fun. I like that she did that. Uh, she's one of my heroes in librarianship. So I know – and we've lived with this and fought against this uh, Patriot Act uh, for all these years now, um, since since 2002. One, really. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the very first uh, California Library Association conference immediately following the Patriot Act's enactment, and my friend Mary Minow, who is a librarian and a lawyer and probably the foremost expert on library law in the country, was there, and she gave a, a briefing to a packed house of librarians on, on what the Patriot Act meant and what the implications were. And since then, it's just been an attempt ongoing by the American Library Association, by the local associations, uh, by the intellectual freedom committees to uh, try to get that rolled back. And now that Section 215 has sunsetted, um, we're just sort of waiting to see in what form it comes back at us. Some other number. Some other number or some other name. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is I'm not sure that our listeners know that the American Library Association is such a um, – what's a good word for it? professional organization, yes, but it is also an activist organization yes. for the users and readers who go to libraries. Right. There is – it's – you know, when you look at other comparable professional associations, you know, the American Medical Association springs to mind and, and really that's not – it's not comparable because what you think of with the AMA is an organization that is lobbies on behalf of doctors. Right. Whereas the American Library Association lobbies on behalf – of readers, librarians, and intellectual freedom as a general rule. And that's what In libraries, the broadest sense. In the very broadest yes. sense, exactly. And I, I really love that about our profession is that we don't – we're not really – we didn't really get into this to make a bundle of money. Um, and we don't really have a lot of industry around the profession that is very lucrative. So it frees us up to be um, focused on the ethics. Mm-hmm. So we do that. So let's ta segue now into exactly your job title is um, as let's see, you are collections manager. So yeah, do you sit in one uh, room and manage that collection, or do you run around to all the libraries? Tell us about what you do. So first off, there's the title itself, collections manager, which you know I'm on LinkedIn. 
as a professional librarian, and that's my title. And I get all these offers for jobs from credit card companies because they think that I'm a collections, <laughs> oh, collections guy. I'm collection agency. Knock on their door ah. and collect on their credit card or whatever. You owe I, 23 cents from exactly. a book you checked out whenever. So the first thing I always have to say is I really prefer the, t- the wording collection development librarian. And so what I do is I work on just that, um, developing the collections that are available to the public here in Sonoma County at all of our 11 branches and two um, reading outposts in Forestville and Occidental. Yes. Um, but we all, every library in Sonoma County is a member of this system. And so we serve a very diverse and dispersed uh, population. And so the trick here, of course, is having some sort of a central eye on things, because we have a fairly hefty budget. You know, mm-hmm. We've got about $1.6 million materials budget, which is roughly one-tenth of the overall library budget. And we take that and we spread it across these 13 outposts. And we try to do it in a way that recognizes the, the individuality of the locations and at the same time what needs to be in any library. Mm-hmm. So what what is sort of a universally good publication that's coming out next month that we need to make sure that at least four or five copies are sprinkled around the county. Right. So we have a really fun system that was developed really before I got here um, that I work with, and it's um, there's some centralized selection, and I don't do all of that. That's done by s- several librarians throughout the county, who, and we coordinate our efforts. And then the materials carts, they're called. We get these electronic carts that list all the books available in the coming few months um, are sent out to the branches, and the branches have a certain pot of money of their own that they can then say, well, we have – I know we have interested readers in that, and we're going to buy that for our branch too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's really kind of the best of both worlds, centralized, decentralized selection. And my role is to just keep my finger on the pulse of of what's going on around the county to – um, develop, in some cases, some special collections. So I've been doing th- some things, as you said, around local authors and musicians to make sure that we have their materials in the libraries and just generally see where the trends are going, for instance, with ebooks or with downloadable audio or with streaming media or all these things that are coming up around the corner. Right, right. Well, one of the things I'm going to do a little plug here for the library because it, the library card is free. And all those special collections and all those uh, targeted readerships in each of the different branches is available to any card-holding member of the Sonoma County Library System. Yeah, that's it's a great a, thing. It's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. And the freeness of it is it, it's kind of astonishing if you think about it in you know the context of 2015 and think about the kinds of AK, you know, public utility kind of things that exist, um, mm-hmm. for instance, on online. So we have you know, a very active social media presence throughout that people participate in. We have search engines. And none of those things are owned by us, the people. Those are owned by giant corporations like Facebook and Google. And everyone is you – know, not everyone, but very many people, the preponderance of the population seems to be invested in that. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't have any – control over that. That's right. It's not taxpayer funded. It's not uh, obligated to present all points of view in any way. The library is taxpayer funded. That's how we run. And we are obligated to represent all fields of knowledge from all points of view. So if you can't walk into your local library and find something to offend you, we're doing something wrong. (laughs) 
Uh, wow, that takes us right into the Grateful Dead. You doesn't betcha. It? Yes, because they have offended their share of people along the way. <laughs> Fifty years. Yeah. Fifty years. Yeah. Let's go on about this. I looked. At, I tried to figure out how to way to to do this because you know you've done an interesting, and I like to get to how you got to the point where you put this into a book. Yeah. But you've done it in an interesting way. For one, you've got a wonderful introduction by Robert Hunter, who's one of the prime lyricists for the dead. I think most people think that Jerry Garcia wrote everything, but he really wrote some, but not Very all. little, just yeah, in the just early days. Just in the beginning, yeah. early mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. So what you've done is you put the collection in chronological order from the first time they were publicly performed that we know. That's right. And, of course, that does not cover those little, you know, riffs at the end that somebody tried something out and right. nobody taped. One of the other things you were talking we, – we talked about the ethics of the deadheads. And I love the fact in the introduction Robert Hunter talks about the anarchy of the audience and how that was encouraged by the, by the dead because you could come in with any kind of recording device you wanted – do what you know. Put it down and share it with whomever you want. Right. So there, if you go online, you can find an amazing amount of material. Yes, from thousands all kinds of, hours, of thousands and thousands of hours of very poorly shot, you know, video or and, good or yeah or yeah. some. There's there's yeah. a couple concerts at Stanford which are really really good. You know, the audio is yeah the audio nice. can be really spectacular. Yeah, and the visuals are maybe, but yeah. a lot of you know handheld camera stuff. Right. Anyway, so we got it in chronological order. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to start with two songs. First is Can't Come Down. It's the first song in the book. Mm-hmm. And the reason is there is because it was the first one performed. And the date you've got there is November 3rd, 1965. It's listed as Music by the Grateful Dead. This is on page three. The Music by the Grateful Dead and lyrics by Jerry Garcia. And my question is, what was the band then? Did they consider themselves bluegrass, folk, what? They certainly weren't the rock and roll that they became. Well, th- this song actually sort of sounds like, if you listen to it, it sounds a lot like Subterranean Homesick Blues. Very much. Um, so they were huge Dylan and Stones and Beatles fans. And in fact, uh, you can read stories about um, them being inspired by seeing A Hard Day's Night and saying, mm-hmm. wow, that looks like a lot of fun to be a rock and roll they band. They covered so. 28 of the Beatles songs, I understand. <laughs> yeah, very good. Wow. See? You are good. So um, I think I think they were a rock and roll band at this time. They were really aspiring to be that. And they had already um, – it would soon happen that they would become the house band for the acid tests. Right. So that was not far off in the future. And when that – occurred, it blended in this sort of freeform experience-based event with the rock and roll aspirations. Chemically fueled. And it, I think it, it, it just logically brought on the Grateful Dead, right? I and mean, what else could have come out of that? <laughs> so, Well, <laughs> uh, and, and actually, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about this is I hadn't realized I, I'm not a deadhead. Okay. okay. I mean, I know there's some of their songs and I you know went to some of their concerts when they were free. And um, and a couple when they weren't, and but I'm not somebody who would travel to Chicago, for instance, right. to see them. The other thing, though, is that I saw. I, I mean, I think of you know Jerry Garcia and uh, Grisman together. You know right. that that after these things that happened, they were always playing. 
right. guess that's the thing. Yeah. They were constantly playing. And there again, some of the videos online, you know, that one that's filmed in in the uh, the living room out at Grisman's house, and the kids are walking back and forth, and they're just, you know, playing. Right. Really going to it. Right. Well, I mean, Garcia was quoted as saying that he basically was addicted to music, and mm-hmm. he would play, you know, seven nights a week if he could. So mm-hmm. he had... And he did. And he sometimes. had the Grateful yeah. Dead, and they would play a stand of, of five shows, and then he would be playing on that same week at the Keystone Berkeley with his own band and sitting in with so-and-so elsewhere. And there was a period when he was in the New Riders of the Purple Sage where right. he would open the show with the New Riders, then the Dead would play an acoustic set, and then they would play two full electric set so he would be on stage for seven hours or whatever and it's mind-boggling yeah. really to think of maintaining that level of, of well, attention it, it, it took its toll yeah yeah definitely you can yeah. because he was a diabetic and right. that's the first thing that hit him as i recall right the other thing that happened and we're back to the ethics again that mm-hmm. i found out and i was not really hadn't been aware of is they never played the same set exactly the way you know, one night yeah. would not be the same as the next night. Right. It's so you could come back. Right. Yeah, bring a friend and it would be different. Right, or bring yourself back. And that's why it never got repetitive for any of us. Another Sonoma County tie-in, I mean, the, the, I don't know if you know about, but Stu Nixon lives in Petaluma, and he's one of the compilers of the famous uh, volume Dead Bass. Oh, yes. Which is uh, a comprehensive list of each show. Each song in each show, the time that it took to play each song in each show. so that And it was originally conceived of as a, a sort of a fingerprint guide to tapes that were mislabeled or unlabeled. So you'd have this tape. Right. You'd play it and you'd say, oh, wow, China Cat Sunflower, that was seven minutes. And then it went into I Know You Writer and that was three and a half minutes. And then they went into Bertha after that. And, and within four or five songs, you'd have a fingerprint because there was – those sequences wouldn't have been repeated right. ever. Right. So, you know, near, if you were really knowledgeable about that. Right. And, well, we, and there are people the tape, out there who, who if you had the tape, you'd you, know. You'd know. You'd be able to just clock it, note the song order and boom, you'd know what concert it was from. So, and that took, I mean, that's gone through 11 editions and they're about to come out with a 50th anniversary edition of Dead Bass. So, it's another Sonoma County connection that I really love and I think it gave rise to, well, I don't think my book would have been possible without Dead Bass. The next song that I want to talk about is the first one that appeared in an album. In fact, you you credit this as, but you call it the first song on the first album, first performed at SF's Winterland on 3-18-67, written, and it's credited to the Grateful Dead. It's called, it's on page 35, The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion, which is not a song title that I instantly think of (laughs) when I think of the dead. No. No, but, you know, Golden Road as a concept has been lifted out. It was the title of Blair Jackson's amazing fan magazine that ran for quite a number of years. It was a labor of love. and But, yeah, this song is a, it's kind of a crack up. And, I, you know, I never heard them play it uh, live. Mm-hmm. And I think they abandoned it, you know, before my time. Mm-hmm. So I did finally get to hear it done live with uh, Further at the Bill Graham oh, Civic yeah. just a few years ago. Yeah. And, man – this thing really rocked. And it was very cool because they have this hey, hey chorus, you know. And at the time um, the that line, they did this the, song. The, the yeah. chorus is hey, 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 come right away. Come and join the party every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean it's a pretty mindless little song. But <laughs> but it, it really was a crowd pleaser. It kind of wrote itself. It huh? kind of yeah. – I guess so. And it's so funny because I, I did – I read an interview once between – with 
I don't know who did the interview. It's probably David Gans and Blair Jackson. Um, but they interviewed Hunter and Garcia together, which mm-hmm. must have been quite yeah an interesting thing to do. You make reference to some of their interviews together. Okay, I'd probably talk about this, yeah. but there was one point where you know they talked about needing to bring Hunter on because you know they were just not doing so well with the lyrics, and Hunter saying something like, "Oh, you guys were doing okay," and Jerry saying, "Well, if you'd have told us that at the time, we never would have brought you on." You know, so. I don't know. They had well, fun he, with and then other. he goes on to say, well, I needed a job. So. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't stupid. And, you know, the amazing thing, I mean, he talks about in his introduction, and really Hunter's introduction is the jewel of the book, you know, because it talks about the craft of actual songwriting and what you have to do to accomplish that. And, and he is so, you know, he relishes the fact that he has actually made a living doing what he loves. He's probably one of the, you know, I don't know how many full-time lyricists there are in the world who make a living. Who aren't singer-songwriters. Who aren't singer-songwriters. Right. All they do is write words. Yeah. You know, there's not that many of them out there. And so he's in an elite little group. No more Hoagie Carmichaels. No more Hoagie Carmichaels. I think he's in that same sort of line, though, yeah. tradition. Yeah. The interesting thing, and I'm going to make reference to go back. As I mentioned, the start of this is like how many pages long? Quite a long bit, isn't it? Um, 24 yeah, pages it's a significant uh, by lesson, Robert Hunter. Right. And, and it goes on in, and off on little tangents, which is it's, – it's almost like you can see his mind work. He got mm-hmm. to a point and he says something and that reminds him, oh, by mm-hmm. the way. I don't know how this was put together. Did he write it for you or – Yes. Yes. Yeah, he wrote this for the book and uh, we were all just kind of blown away that he put together something quite so significant. You know, when you ask someone to do a foreword for a book, it's often – a little nod. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's yeah. this book. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Thank you so much for doing it. But no, he took it seriously and said, this is actually going to be presenting my entire body of work. I want to have something to say here. So, And he did. <laughs> he, really, right. he really did say it. And you know, some of the things he talks about are his reluctance overall to have the words put into this kind of form that's permanent and ink on paper and all that. And I'll talk a little bit about that if I could because – in the early days when I first started doing the annotations, um, uh, well, first of all, I started doing them in the 1980s on 3 by 5 cards just for my own interest. Um, and then as time went by, I migrated jobs and I wound up as a tenure-track librarian at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs mm-hmm. at the Kramer Family Library. And I needed to have research projects and librarians' research projects tend to be pretty – Awful, dull, <laughs> dull and boring. But right around this time, this thing called the World Wide Web got invented. Right. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, this, this would be the venue for these annotations. So I started putting up just the annotations. Like I would just put the line of the song and then a link to information about that line. And, mm-hmm. and really it's not interpretation. I want to be clear. I'm not interpreting these songs. I'm merely – Providing pointers to the references within the song. So, can I can I interject? Sure. For example, where there's a line that sounds like it's something, you know, taken from another song or from a book right. or some other source, see the Bible, right? Or it references, or references a historical character yeah, or, a or a geographical or a location, place. Right. right? So those kind of things. And I thought, well, this would be really great. I can do this on the World Wide Web through this hyperlink technology. And so mm-hmm. I taught myself. HTML, and I started hard-coding all these songs, and, oh, gosh. Um, but not full text, just the lines. And then finally I said – I wrote a letter to Ice Nine Publishing, who handle the rights. Um, Alan Trist was in charge of Ice Nine at the time. 
And I wrote a letter and said, you know, here's this project I'm doing. Would you take a look at it? And if you're okay with me doing this kind of thing, would you consider possibly letting me use all of the words to one of the songs as an example Mm -hmm. of what it looks like? So Mm -hmm. I would love to do China Cat Sunflower or Ramble on Rose and have all of the words available. And indeed, uh, he wrote back and said, sure, go ahead and, you know, put it up online. And so – and I did a formal piece of paper with a signature and a release and everything because I was a librarian and copyright is very important and all of that. And so um, – and time went by and I kept asking for more and more songs and I wanted Dark Star and I wanted, you know, St. Stephen and then I wanted, you know, so, okay. Trucking. I got to ask, why those songs? What – Oh, because you found huh. some really You've wonderful little – something interesting. Yes. Um, those songs, the ones I've mentioned are so far, Ramble on Rose, China Cat, Sunflower, Dark Star, St. Stephen, and Truckin' are all the ones that um, have probably the richest body of references They have more pages them. in your book. They have more pages in the book. They have, they have what I would say I would characterize as um, keystone positions in the body of lyrics. So you take those songs away and other things fall apart. They mm-hmm. don't, they don't, they're not quite as clear. But – I believe that there are certain songs that you can identify that once you have those you know, under your belt, you are in a better position to work with the rest of the lyrics. And so those were those songs. But where I was going with this was that over time, I finally they just said, David, just use all the full text of all the lyrics. Blanket permission from Ice Nine Publishing. And Very nice. Wow. That, so, yeah. so I got to put up probably legitimately – the only place on the web where you could find full text of rock lyrics that were sanctioned by the authors mm-hmm. and their publishers. Mm-hmm. So I – and I believe it was also the first use of hypertext to annotate a literary text of any kind. That may be. So yeah. I'm pretty sure. So I'm claiming that. And then <laughs> – Why not? But then – so I, you know, I worked with these lyrics for a number of years um, and my project actually started in 1994 – and in the very early days of the web. And when Jerry died in in August of 95, I was well into the project and I knew at that point that I had a closed body of work. Mm. There would be no more Grateful right. Dead songs. Wow. Yeah. So um, at that point, I, I really put a lot of effort into it and I was receiving 20 or 30 emails a day from people around the world with comments and hints and, and things. And uh, by the end of a few years, I might say 1998 or so, I thought I had enough for a book. And so it might have been even earlier than that. And I emailed Ice Nine and I said, so what would you think about a book, print on, print on paper? And they said, absolutely not. You know, The electronic realm is one thing. Print on paper is a whole different ball of wax. Mm-hmm. We don't want any of this stuff on paper mm-hmm. um, because it borders on interpretation and it locks down the lyrics and that's mm-hmm. against our – Whole conception right of what we're doing to, here. You know, our introduction. Exactly where he talks about that. Yes. Exactly. So, um, and that was that was fine. You know, for a number of years, I just kept the website going. It migrated away from University of Colorado to the University of California in Santa Cruz, where there was a advocate for Grateful Dead studies named Fred Lieberman, and he invited me to be a, a research associate affiliated with the University of California in Santa Cruz, so so that I could have a library card there and they would host my website and so on. And they still do. That website's still still there. I'm not maintaining it or updating it anymore, but it's there at the University of California. Do they have Santa the Cruz. archives for the day? They do. Yeah. They do. They, they subsequently um, went full bore into 
into right. Grateful Dead collecting, right. which right. I love. Yeah. Um, so um, eventually, though, you know, a few years went by. I worked for Marin County Library. I, I worked for San Francisco Public Library. And while I was at San Francisco, I got a note from a publisher saying, hey, we'd like to publish your website as a book. And so I said, OK, well, I'll ask Try Ice again. Nine again. And sure. I asked, and this was 2004, and I got a note back saying, yeah, seems like the right time. And it was a mind-boggling piece of email to get because then I knew I would be working on nothing else for the next year or so because that's what you do when you're writing a book, right? right. You, that's right. You just put yourself you into sit it. sit down in the chair and work. Yeah. So that that's why it came out in 2005 eventually as a published book, print on paper and – all of these lyrics, and hence the big introduction from from Robert Hunter. Well, it's a it's a it's a amazing piece of work. It really is. I can see the hours. You are listening to a special Grateful Dead version of Word by Word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media KRCB FM. Our guest is librarian, cultural historian, and Deadhead David Dodd, author of a massive book with a rather long title. The complete annotated Grateful Dead lyrics, the collected lyrics of Robert Hunter and John Barlow, lyrics to all original songs with selected traditional and cover songs. <gasps> In the next half hour, we're going to chat about more of the Grateful Dead songs, and we're going to start off with one which is uh, very, very, has lots of background material in it. So um, stay tuned. Don't you worry anymore Cause when life looks like easy street There is danger at your door Think this through with me Let me know your mind Oh, what I want to know Is are you kind? It's a buck Dancer's choice, my friends Better take my advice You know all the rules by now And the fire from the ice Will you come with me? Won't you come with me? Oh, oh, what I want to know Will you come with me? Will I declare Have you seen the light Their walls Are built of cannonballs Their motto is Don't tread on me Come here Uncle John's bed Playing to the tide Come With me or go alone Please come To take his children home So that is Uncle John's band And I'm going to Read what is uh, written in the uh, introduction by Robert Hunter about that. The images and themes of Uncle John's band are more than normally elusive, even for me. It was, incidentally, the first lyric I wrote with the aid of a newfangled gadget, the cassette tape recorder. See, this puts it in time and place, doesn't it? Yeah. I taped the band playing the arrangement and was able to score lyrics at leisure rather than stretch away hurried, um, scratch away hurriedly at rehearsals waiting for particular sections to come around again. 
Few of their songs, like Box of Rain is an exception, were so fully realized as UJB, he calls it. Uh, UJB is a celebration of folk themes played down by the riverside, hailing from a peculiar place where Appalachia met immigrant Scottish, English, Welsh, and Irish folk traditions. To my mind, the mythic territory of Fenario, where Sweet William courted Pretty Peggio with such romantically disastrous consequences. I wanted to supercharge that ethos as something of ultimate value into public consciousness. You can swallow a song like UJB whole for what it evokes in you, mystery and all, or you can track down the resources I selected while stumbling through the dark of composition. The dark of composition. Wow. And the reason I picked that particular one is it's about Uncle John's band, and it shows how he worked on that particular thing, but also kind of says what you do. That's right. Where he's taken these images, and, he, and they're conscious decisions. You can tell from the ways he writes. He's not a, he's a well-read individual. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Erudite comes to mind. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Likes to use big words. Loves it. Yeah. But then simplifies them in the song. Right. Which is very yeah. clever of him, isn't it? Isn't it? And you've taken those images, and that's what you, and many times what you've annotated. That's right. That's that's what I have wanted to work with because of my own curiosity primarily. And it didn't start with Uncle John's band for me, but it's a great example um, because um, uh, there have been wonderful – oh, gosh. One of the great things that happens with Grateful Dead lyric interpretation and, and writing about the lyrics mm-hmm. is there are many, many um, scams. So people will – purposely mislead listeners um, with hilarious, um, <laughs> wide-ranging interpretations. And one of the best ones about about Uncle John's band that I saw was this entire essay, very serious in tone, about how it was actually about a flea circus that was Uncle John's band, a little-known flea circus that traveled the You'd circuit. You had never heard of before. Had, no one circus, had ever heard of before. Right. And, and uh, yeah, this uh, was a wonderful – and I don't know if I ever even put this I don't into my annotation. That. I think I would have. But it's pretty pretty hilarious. There's a, another similar essay for Franklin's Tower about Benjamin Franklin and the process of doing bells, which was a way to finish the metal casting on bells. I and, see. And these are all um, totally um, just off the wall and – and made up right. fantastical right. things. So uh, I've loved that about about this little corner. And I, I really would have loved to include some of those essays in this book, but there wasn't room. So, But you can go find them online. So there's a wonderful, serious uh, interpretation of this song. But what, what this song – what happened with the inter- annotations on this song was uh, online when I was collecting – you know, people's input on a regular basis. And I got an email from um, somebody with Smithsonian Folkways who mm-hmm. pointed me to the New Lost City Ramblers and, mm. and the fact that they had um, some songs that sounded remarkably similar to some of the lines in Uncle John's band. And I I posted that email and, and made some suggestions about it. And I actually got an email for one of the few times in my life from Robert Hunter saying, hey, like the way this conversation's going, I think you're on the right track. <laughs> so is this the Come Ye All songs? Yes. This yes. is the Come All Ye's. And, or Come – is that what it is? Yeah. Come, come All Ye. Yeah. So, you know, there, and that, that phrase is a – as a you know, in Candyman, Come All You Pretty Women mm-hmm. with Your Hair Hanging Down. So it's used 
frequently in folk music and occasionally in Grateful Dead. Yeah, because I, I remember in some of the folk lyrics that you I bet. recall. Yeah. Come all you fair and tender yeah. ladies, yeah, exactly. take warning how you court your men. So, yeah, all of those um, songs uh, find their way into these songs. And you can read more about it in David Dodd's book on, uh, let's see, the pages on Uncle John's Band, which run from 102 through 106, yeah. Yeah, which is quite a bit of yeah, and material. Several of the illustrations by Jim Carpenter, Jim Carpenter, who is a, a wonderful artist from Oregon. And, mm-hmm. and this idea was actually my wife's. Um, that we try to do it sort of like a dictionary with little inset drawings rather than have a lot of photographs. So there are no photographs anywhere in the book. Well, you've um, got some uh, uh, cover art or something. Yeah, there's, the, some, the there's, some, there's some other pieces of art, but mm-hmm. there are no photographs. We could have used photographs of Emily Dickinson, and we could have photographed a Don't Tread on Me flag, or we could have yeah. photographed and a buck dancer Corbis or something. makes all that money, right? Yeah, so we, yeah. Didn't, we didn't do that. We actually used an artist, and he did original drawings for – Many, many odd little corners of these songs, and uh, I think he's a kind of a genius, actually. So Uncle John's Band has Easy Street, it's got a buck dancer, it's got Don't Tread on Me, it's got the crow telling a story, and it's got Emily Dickinson. Okay, the buck dancer. Let's talk about that. That's a good one. Because I didn't know what I know now after reading your annotations. I assumed a buck dancer was somebody who danced for a buck. Oh. See? Ah. No. A no. buck dancer is a male dancer. Who invites the female to dance? It's kind of like the reverse of, you know, ladies' choice. Is that right? That's well, one and interpretation. It's, yeah, and the buck and wing is a particular dance. Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, made famous um, as a phrase by um, the poet uh, James Dickey mm-hmm. uh, in, because uh, he has a, an actual poem with that title, which I'm not finding in my own annotations here. Where is that? Buck Dancer's Choice, title of a volume of poetry by James Dickey. Yeah, it is. So 1966. So it's likely that Hunter knew that. Like like you said, he's extremely well read. His father was an English professor, and he really seems to have absorbed that through his skin somehow. (laughs) And and uh, he, I don't, I, I never put anything past him. You know that that's what I've learned over the years is that if if there's some reference that you can dig up, he was probably there already. You know, so it's a Dame Edith Sitwell reference in China Cat Sunflower. Well, he knows the poetry of Dame Edith Sitwell. I'm sorry. He knows all that stuff cold. Mm-hmm. So T.S. Eliot, you know, Pound, all the, anybody, you know. So I just never anymore figure that my reference is far-fetched. I figure it's probably pretty likely if I find it that he had already found it and knew it. Or knew it. Right. He had just pulled it out. Right. Right. So It's going to fit here. And that's kind of fun. And the same is true of the other major lyricist for the dead, John Perry Barlow, mm-hmm. who is um, oh, a big ally for librarians generally because he is one of the co-founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Oh. But he was a theology student. And uh, so many, many biblical and other theological references sprinkled throughout his songs. And, and pulling those out, I mean, he, he wrote the afterword. Mm-hmm. You know, Hunter right. wrote the foreword right. and, and Barlow wrote the afterword. And he talks about his – well, David found a lot of the biblical references, but by no means did he find them all. <laughs> Thanks, John. He's going to square chapter and verse, right? That's right. Yeah, I love that. Now, let's talk about trucking because that's one of the ones you said that, you know, really got you going here. Um, it's on 131 to 134. <laughs> 
Rights is a very interesting thing mm-hmm. because we had to do um, extensive rights work throughout the process of this whole book. That was an- and another question. I actually yeah. missed a major one um, in the song Wharf Rat. And I'm terrible with – sometimes I resent myself for not putting this in alphabetical order instead of chronological. Well, I did when I was using yeah. it. Let's put it that way. That's ah, terrible. But there's an index. So <laughs> there's you, an index. You can yes. get there. You can. So in Wharf Rat, there's a line, <laughs> I'll get up and fly away, fly away. And I right. thought, oh, the old song, I'll fly away. You know? And so I quoted it and I attributed it to traditional. Uh, and I got a letter uh, from oh, isn't the – Isn't it a spiritual It's a written song? spiritual yeah. from a certain composer and it's still under 19, copyright. And so. Is that really It's not even copyright? that old. It's, really? It's, yeah. And so I got a letter from them saying we would like to ask for our share of the mechanical rights for this use of our – so I wrote back and I said – and they said, so tell us you know, how many copies were, were sold. So I wrote back at the time. I said, well, I think we've sold about 30,000 copies of this book. We've since sold about 70,000 more, but at the time it was that. And and they said, oh, never mind <laughs> because that was nothing. You know, Compared to – what would they figured do? Figured on out the – Two and a half cents or 0. Yeah, 0.5 cents yeah. per issue or whatever. That's the way they wanted to do it. Whereas usually we didn't – like with Bob Dylan where I quote Bob Dylan, I would write to his publishing company. Sure. And I'd say I want to quote this, this, and this. How much? And they'd write back and it was always like 50 bucks. You know, just yeah. 50 bucks to quote any song about Bob Dylan's, which seems so reasonable, right? Because you're going to be quoting it in a book that's I published would... in hundreds of thousands of yeah, copies or yeah. whatever. And, 
But he was, you know, that was just a standard fee. Same with Chuck Berry's company or any of these people I had to go to to get permissions to quote snippets of the songs. Mm -hmm. And these all fly away people didn't have that same. I offered. I said, "Wait, here's an example of the kind of check that you would get normally." And you know, Bob Dylan got fifty dollars, and so they wrote back and pretty much said, "Well, never mind." One of the things I also like, you were talking about how uh, people would get up on stage and they, they might – the lyrics were not set in stone. Is right. that a good way to put it? That's a very good way to put it. I think that's kind of a quote from somebody. But Probably. We, we can find an attribution somewhere. At any rate, you go through and in different times in the book, you kind of uh, point out the fact that specifically over and over, Bob Weir would change the words to songs. Uh, and mm-hmm. that would make uh, whoever had written them, usually Bob Hunter – uh, get a little upset to put it or testy or something like that. On the other hand, it showed the improv feeling of the evening. What song haven't we talked about that you need to share that you really have to talk about? Well, I would always want to talk about the one that got me going down this path of the whole book, which is Ramble on Rose. Okay. And Ramble on Rose is a, it's like a little cross between ragtime and, you know, sort of skiffle or something. I don't know. It's hard to characterize musically. Ramble on Rose, 176 to 182. You do put a lot of material on that one. Well, it's full of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that all these all these people get referenced in the songs. Uh, and it starts with Jack the Ripper and Billy Sunday. And, you know, who was Billy Sunday? That was actually the first question I had. He was I a had. minister. Yes. Yes. He got was all a, the – I think he had a radio show too, didn't he? He was an evangelical yeah. early tent tent ministry kind right. of guy who traveled around. But before that, he was a professional baseball player. I did not know that. And I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. So this is what I started pursuing when I was a reference librarian in the Alameda County Library in the 80s. And in sort of the corners of my time, I would look up and try to find out. I would just track down these references. So uh, Ramble, and Ro- Ramble on Rose was the first one. And, and really, the song 
uses the first two pages of this annotation. So it's on 176 and 177. Mm-hmm. And then all the rest of these pages are just annotations. And it's so rich in, in all of these references that um, you start to want, what is he up to here? <laughs> you know. And what I came to was that this song sort of is this major evocation of all things musical and all things sort of mythical and all things sort of American. And it was right in the middle, written in the middle of this big Americana period of the, of the dead's writing. So there, there came Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and then this set of songs that appear on the Europe 72 live album, which were never recorded in the studio. They never got the studio treatment. And they are this – they evoke this America – that just sort of sprawls across this triple album that they put out, Europe 72, um, three LPs, you know, six sides. And this is right smack in the middle of it all. And, you know, when I, when I hear this song, I hear um, all of the songs because there's reference to ragtime, there's reference to the blues, to country music, um, Nursery and rhymes. Nursery rhymes. It's just it's just this big swirl of evocation. And I found it f- fascinating to pursue and to start to notice little patterns popping up. For instance, in the first verse, you get um, Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And then in the second verse, you get Jack and Jill. Mm-hmm. And then you get Wolfman Jack. Mm-hmm. And then you get this reference to Royal Flesh. So there's card references in here. And that's a – Motif throughout Grateful Dead songs is playing cards, uh, gambling and, and poker and all the various card games. Um, so you've got three jacks you know, up against this royal flesh and uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. It doesn't mean anything. It well, just yeah, but puts, in something, the middle, puts in an the image in your head. In the middle of this song, we have flash fiction. Ah. And I'm going to read it to you. Yeah. Just like Jack and Jill, as we know, went up the hill, et cetera, et cetera. Mama told the sailor, one heat up and one cool down, leave nothing for the tailor. Just like Jack and Jill, my papa told the jailer, one go up and one come down, do yourself a favor. And that is a novel right there. I know. Well, he is a novelist, and he talks about that sometimes, that you know, his real, he's really trying to be a novelist in lyrics, and I think he does that. I think you're right. This In any one of these verses of these kind of things, and sometimes – they seem like nonsense, and like they he's are. Trying, he's working on a, on a rhyme. Yeah, just yeah. trying to make it rhyme, right? Right. So that's that's the whole point. But really, that I don't believe that's ever the case. Even in the most swirly, psychedelic, image-based, glittery stuff of of hunters like Dark Star or China Cat Sunflower, there it's not nonsense. It's a different kind of sense, maybe, and you have to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And once you get into it you find yourself open to a lot more possibilities. And so, you know, never to lock it down, never to say this is what it means. You could say this is what it means to me, but even that's kind of today breaching. This yeah, minute. this moment, yeah. right, or this is what this is what I get from it right now. And the songs do change over time. And they're evocative. They're evocative. At all kinds of levels. Right. Where you heard it, who you heard it with, right. what you what know, words you in, heard? What was in the atmosphere at the time? I mean, you know, yeah. f- for instance, this song I heard done at the closing of Winterland concert 
um, one time, and I was sure I understood. Most of the words were not written down. They didn't come in the liner notes. Right. And they weren't published in books. And there was no way to know what they were except by picking up the needle and dropping it back two grooves over and over again, which <laughs> we did. Right. But, you know, this line, so one go up and out. one yeah. come down, do yourself a favor, I heard very clearly as buckle up and buckle down, do yourself a it favor. It may have been sung that way once. I wouldn't put it. I went back and listened to the show, and no, they sing it this way. But I heard "buckle up and buckle down." See, that works too. It works. Sure. I thought, what a great line! You can become a pseudo lyricist. (laughs) David Dodd, thank you. You we you have been listening to a special Grateful Dead version of Word by Word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB FM. Our guest was librarian, cultural historian, and Deadhead, and really quite a funny man, David Dodd author of a massive book with a short title, I'm going to say, of the complete annotated Grateful Dead lyrics. Our studio engineer is Jesse Van Cushen, KRCB FM's program director is Sean Knight, station's administrative assistant is Wendy Nicholson, and we invite you to join us for a special word-by-word conversations from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, July 12th, when our guest will be Jessica Jackley, the co-founder of Kiva the International Microlending Program, in a conversation about her newest book, Clay, Water, Brick, finding inspiration from entrepreneurs who do the most with the least. Until then, we leave you with this important information contained in a letter to all the deadheads. Quote, We love you guys more than words can tell and hope to see you in the Bay Area or Chicago. If you can't make it to the shows, we are working on ways for you to still experience our fare thee well from wherever you might be. Stay tuned. Gratefully yours, Billy, Bobby, Mickey, and Phil. You didn't mean goodbye. You meant please. Don't let me go. I was having a hard time Living the good life Well, I know I'm here.